0: Uh, Today's word comes from Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 31, uh, verses 9 through 13. Deuteronomy 31, verses 9 through 13. This is God's word. Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God And be careful to do all the words of this law. And that their children, who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Church, this is the word of the Lord. And thanks be to God. Pastor Bill will give the message now.
1: Good morning. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. And before we dive into this morning's message, I want to give a quick update to something that I had shared personally a couple weeks ago. A number of you have asked me since then, you've been praying about the surgery that I had done on my knee. It was about a week and a half ago, and I'm happy to report it's it's progressing really, really well. I was in the OR for about an hour. The recovery it was pretty hard the first couple days, not gonna lie. Um, I had forgotten how hard that was, Sally did not. Um, she ended up taking an extra day off of work just to help me out. What has amazed both of us, however, is how quickly I'm progressing. Uh, I think the other need took about two to three months to recover, and, and when I did this two years ago, I am light years beyond that. And so each day can go a little bit further, a little bit faster, and we are just really, really thankful. So thank you for praying. Thank you for your concern for reaching out. I think we're in a really good place. For this morning, we are making some changes to our Sunday morning worship service this fall, as you just heard Pastor Dan talk about, and the pastors and elders thought that it might be helpful to all of us to share from Scripture why we're doing that. So today's going to be a little bit more like teaching than preaching, if you have that distinction in your minds. As we think about the biblical foundation for why our worship and why our children's ministry and youth ministries are seeing some changes now if you would rather have this preached to you than taught pastor andrew kim over a cornerstone press has done a, a, just a fantastic message uh, i i it's very frankly it's better than anything that i could do feel free please go online listen to that uh, i learned an awful lot from that i appreciate especially not only what he said but the way that he said it. Since I'm doing more teaching than preaching this morning, I've tried to make your outline a little bit more full so that you can take notes a little more easily, follow along, also so that maybe you can look back at things later. I'm going to reference a whole lot of different scripture. Maybe you want to jot those down in the margins. Basically, we are trying to think about two questions, two background questions over this past year, pastors and elders, Questions along the lines of, who does God expect to participate in and to benefit from our corporate gatherings as his church? Who does he expect? Is it just adults or is it adults and children? If children, which children? How old are these children? How young? For which part of the gathering does he expect them to be in? So when the church comes together and worships the Lord, who does God expect to be in that group? And then second very important how does he plan to benefit those who gather how does he expect that benefit to be conferred to his people okay those are the background questions that the pastors and elders have been wrestling with for the better part of this past year and to sort of give us some sense of where we think we've come down we're going to approach those from three directions this morning you see them in your outline first we're going to ask why do we even need to ask these questions? Secondly, okay, seeing that, what does the Bible have to say about them? And then third, what are we going to do as the renewal community? So three main headings on your outline, why ask these questions, what does the Bible have to say about them, and what are we going to do? First, let's start by realizing that when you and I look out onto the larger world, when we think about the world, when we ask questions about the world, there are some things that are just obvious to us, things that we take for granted. Because in our minds, there's only really one way to think about it. For instance, if you grew up in this country and you learn to drive, it's just obvious (laughs) you do that on the right-hand side of the road. It's so obvious it never enters your mind That there might be another way to do that until what until you drop into another culture where people drive on the left hand side of the road and you discover in that culture they can't imagine doing it any other way now what is that that's the impact and the power of culture that's how your culture forms and shapes how you approach the rest of the world and what we each tend to do is we look out not only from our culture, but we assume that our culture the way that our culture has taught us to think, the way that it's taught us to act, the questions it teaches us to ask, we assume that our culture is superior to other cultures. And what I'd like to suggest this morning is that the questions about children and worship that our modern Western world asks, the ones that seem relatively obvious to us, would probably not even be on the radar for an Israelite in the Old Testament. They lived in a world that intentionally included children within the worshiping life of the community because it always had. They lived in a world that was informed by Genesis 12, by Genesis 17, where God promised to form a special relationship with Abraham and specifically with his children, such that even newborn infants were included among the people of God it's just the way it was it was a world where children were not invited to be part of the religious life of the community they were expected to be part and so for instance when the whole family came together in exodus chapter 12 to share the passover meal children were included because you couldn't even imagine having that meal without them and they were expected there at all ages including before they really understood what was going on. And it was their active participation in that religious activity of their family that was part of the learning. They did things that they didn't understand. And then at some point, they started asking questions. Verse 26, they would ask their parents, what does this mean to you? Or being thus translated, why are we doing this? That was just built into Israelite culture. So it would not be a question of who was involved when the people of God came together. It was obvious. It was taken for granted. It was right-hand side of the road obvious that it is those who believe and their children as well. So why then do we ask these questions? Why is it not as obvious to us? We live in a different social location one that influences us in different directions, more the left-hand side of the road, so that what would have been obvious to the Israelites is less so to us. Let me just run through three different influences on us. First one would be uh, what scholars like James Francis in his piece on children and childhood in the New Testament have pointed out, that people used to think of childhood as being a much shorter span of time than how we actually think about childhood in the modern world. He points out that even thinking about childhood as a life stage is a relatively recent way of thinking about young people. It is one that we now take for granted, but it's not how societies used to think. Instead, what? Children were understood as adults in the making. They were people who needed to be trained in the values of the family and the values of society. Now, you need to be careful how you hear that comment about a couple thousand years ago. Because as we've talked about a number of times here at Renewal, one of the modern myths, and I'm putting it that way on purpose, one of the modern myths of our society, one of the things that we believe, one of the things that we take on faith, is that humanity is progressing, that humanity is becoming better and better over time. And one of the implications of that way of thinking, of framing that narrative is that older societies, by definition, were not as advanced as we are now. Instead, we think of them as less developed. We think of them even as backward in how they understood people. We think of them as primitive, as they thought about what makes a healthy environment for people. And so we in our modern society tend to look down on earlier societies. We evaluate. Societies from the past With a certain arrogance An arrogance that says, yes They treated children as little adults But we don't now because why We've progressed We understand developmental stages Better than they did We understand it's not good to treat young people As miniature adults That was a benighted way of thinking That wasn't good for children Or for young people Now when I hear things like that, I always find it helpful to go back into Scripture and ask, God, is that true? Is that how you think about young people and their development? And my mind is drawn to a passage like Luke chapter 2 when Jesus was 12 years old. His parents had taken him to Jerusalem for the Passover, and afterward they set out for home and were told that they traveled an entire day While jesus stayed behind in jerusalem they think about that think about what's going on there they walked for an entire day not worried about where he was they assumed verse 44 that he was fine just traveling with some of the family and friends and they thought that was a reasonable way to think about a 12 year old to think that he was closer to being a man than he was to being a boy that he could take care of himself for a day, didn't need their constant supervision. And it's only at the end of the day when they realize he's not with the group that they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. When they find him, he's in the temple courts, he's talking with the teachers of the law about the word of God. And Jesus rebukes them, but not for mistreating him as a child. He doesn't look at his mom and dad and say, you guys are terrible parents. You're incredibly irresponsible when it comes to dealing with children. Instead, he rebuked them for not recognizing where his passion had to take him as a young adult into his father's house. Both Jesus and they had a different sense of life stage than our modern world does. Now, someone might be thinking, because people think and say this a lot, okay, yes, but that's Jesus, He's God. Let me say this really gently. You don't want that objection to be true. Because if Jesus is not fully human, if he did not experience all the normal things that human beings do, including growing up and maturing from a boy into a man, if he's not fully human, he really can't represent humanity before God because he wouldn't be one of us. if he's not one of us he can't genuinely take responsibility for us for our rebellion you really want him to be fully human or you're still stuck in your sins you want him to be a fully normal 12 year old human being but we'll set him aside for a moment we'll think about his mother Mary scripture does not tell us how old she was when she gave birth but the vast consensus is that she was a teenager, very possibly a very young teen when she had her firstborn. And you have to keep in mind here that she wasn't pregnant at that age based on the social customs of her day. She was pregnant because God himself was personally involved, both in the act of conception by his spirit and in selecting her at that time of her life again think about this he chose her at that age had his pick of all possible women throughout time and history at all ages he chose mary at that age as the one who would best care for the physical needs of his son and again you have to put this in the context of god's nature god always pays the greater cost to be in relationship with his people always pays more than any of the rest of us do so he's not asking anyone including mary to pay more for his plans than he does. It's that God with that nature who thinks that this teenager was not only ready, but prepared to be the mother that his son needed. Now, I do know who I'm talking to this morning. People who, when we hear about child brides or teenage brides, we think about how horrible that would be for the mother, for the child. We think of babies having babies. And so I have a sense of how shocking this could be for some of us. We look at our daughters, we look at our own lives, and we can't imagine anything good coming from this. Please do not go out of here and say, Pastor Bill is advocating for child brides. Okay, you did not hear me say that. What are you hearing me say? I'm saying that if you're shocked by thinking about Jesus and Mary, as normal young teens, pre teens, are you willing to consider that maybe you've gotten your ideas of children and youth and maturity more from your culture than you have from Scripture? Are you open to holding your culture and your cultural background as a modern person just a little less tightly? Are you open to questioning your own assumptions about children, rather than just take for granted what you've been taught? Are you willing to think about your assumptions as possibly a product of your social location, rather than things that are just obvious givens, something that everyone knows is true? Are you open to holding those assumptions a little more loosely as you come to Scripture? I think that's the value of thinking about Jesus and Mary as young people. It allows God's perspective to challenge how our society might teach us to think about children and childhood. But that's one influence on us that's gonna make it harder for us to think about children and young people fully participating among God's people. It's because we tend to have lower expectations for them based on our cultural location. Here's a second influence. And that is that many of us come from an EM background, an English ministry background. And I'm speaking now of an experience that I did not have. So I want to speak really, really carefully. I'm recognizing I have an awful lot to learn here about what you, many of you, have lived through. I also want to be careful because even if I were to learn as much as I possibly could, it still would not be my experience. So i'm still only understanding it from the outside so with all those caveats for some of us we grew up in the church how separated from our parents separated from the community of god's people they spoke a language that was different from ours and so we had to have a service geared to us geared to our needs and the glory of god is that he really did meet us there he saved us rescued us brought us to himself in that specialized environment that is a wonderful thing that's something that has to be celebrated speaking very personally now i have many things like that in my own experience things that whereas i read scripture now i realize that what god did in my life is outside of the paths that he's normally prescribed for people seeing how god ordinarily blesses his people in those paths, does not invalidate then the special ways that he's met me. It doesn't invalidate the special ways that he's met you. What it does is it makes me that much more amazed at how kind he is to to reach down and to stoop down into my world into where I still am at times. While at the same time, it teaches me to aim for something different With my children with my family and holding both of those two things together is hard right celebrating while i decide okay here's what scripture says i need to move in a different direction that's hard to do at the same time it takes time to do that and while it's taking time sometimes we miss what is in scripture because we're trying to recreate the way that god met us personally and individually it's a second element that will make some of this hard Third element that influences our thinking about children in worship settings is how our modern society devalues children. How our society values other things above having children and above having children around. And so as a society, we are increasingly more comfortable with with a childless society. And we increasingly expect that kind of environment. read this past year of a restaurant in New Jersey that's decided to ban children under the age of 10 from eating there. Children are what? They, they, They think they're too noisy, too messy, they're too much work, and so this restaurant no longer allows them. And as you read through some of the threads as people interact with the article, a number of people said things along the lines of, fantastic. Now I'll eat there more often. And my heart sinks because you hear in that that our society has learned to value settings in which children are absent. Or I'm finding tons of articles of couples without children bragging that they'll never have children because kids will hinder them from doing what they want, from going where they want to go. They'll just be a drain on the couple's time and money. And so they proclaim their childlessness as positive, as a good, And it's not. From the beginning, God values children. He tells humanity to have lots of them, to be fruitful and multiply, to have so many children that we fill the earth, to have so many that one day, Revelation chapter 7 tells us, there will be a multitude just clustering around Jesus that no one can count. No one can count. What does that tell you? God likes people. God likes people having children because God likes children that grow up into people. God is not like the disciples in Matthew 19 who tried to keep people from bringing their little ones to Jesus. But God himself, second person of the Trinity, Jesus welcomes the little children into his presence. Our modern society's preference for adults only is not good. It's not godly. In the right sense of the word, it's diabolical. It comes from the devil himself. It is the proclamation of an anti-God value, one that opposes filling the universe with as many images of God as possible. And that desire to eliminate children wherever they are found is part of the spirit of the age that you and I live in. It's part of the world. That makes it hard then to hear what God says about the goodness of children present with everything that they bring, participating in corporate worship. Those three things our modern definitions of childhood, our own personal experiences, and our culture that devalues children are going to make it hard for us to even think that we need to ask God what He thinks about having children in the congregation when we meet together to worship. That's point one. Point two, being sensitized then to these negative influences. What does scripture have to say about children and the corporate gathering of God's people? I'm only going to look with you at three passages today. In Deuteronomy, Nehemiah, and Colossians. We'll start in Deuteronomy chapter 31. Pastor Dan read it for us earlier. Chapter 31 beginning in verse 9. Then Moses wrote this law. And you think, what law? It means everything that he's written before in the book of Deuteronomy, chapters 1 to 30. That's what the word Deuteronomy means. It means second law or copy of the law. Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years at the set time in the year of release at the feast of booths when all israel comes to appear before the lord your god at the place that he will choose you shall read this law before all israel in their hearing assemble the people men women the little ones and the sojourner within your towns that they may hear and learn to fear the lord your god and be careful to do all the words of this law and that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the lord your god as long as you live in the land that you are going over the jordan to possess a lot in there we're just going to focus on a few pieces notice who's supposed to be gathered verse 12 in god's presence it's not just the men because in God's community, women are equal in worth and value with men. So they are not excluded from hearing the word of God. And so verse 12, assemble the people, who men and women and little ones. And the word there for little ones is a special word. There are a lot of references to children throughout the book of Deuteronomy. The vast majority of those references are to a are, are, use a different word than the one that you find here. The majority of those references are not tied to a specific age. They simply refer in some way to your descendants. Those could be near descendants, your personal children, or your long grandchildren, whatever. They're to your descendants. That's not the case here in chapter 31. This word is used much more sparingly. And it is age-related. That's why you have that adjective little there, because the root word means to mince along, to trip along, to take these real short little quick steps as you move along. And the lexicon, the Hebrew dictionary, then will refer to these little children as those who are unable to march, those who can't carry themselves over long distances. Instead, you have to carry them because they are that little. And the point here is to tell you, you are to include them when the covenant community is called together as a people. Assemble the people means that you include the very youngest. Now, what are you supposed to do when you are called together? Verse 11, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. When God's people come together before the Lord, they come together to hear the word of God read. Now, I started rereading Deuteronomy last week, a week and a half ago while I was home recovering uh, from surgery with my knee up. I did not get through the book in one sitting. It's a really long book. It's basically a series of sermons that Moses delivers right before the children of Israel enter the promised land. And God, through Moses, wants the people to come together with their little ones to hear this read out loud. In other words, in God's mind, children, including the littlest ones, have a right to Scripture. They have a right to hear what He has said. You do not discount them. They are part of the community. So too... Do those who weren't born in Israel, the sojourner and their children. That's a topic for a different day, really important. Children here, little children, have a right to Scripture. Now, I know that rights language is currently overused, that most of the time no one can actually point to why someone has a right to something that they claim. This is one place where it is right to talk about rights, because this is a God-given right. It's a benefit that he wants his people to have, including children. You think to yourself, well, wait, how, how does this benefit them? Are the little ones the ones who are so small? Are they going to absorb this intellectually? Are they going to understand it, apprehend it? You think, of course not, they'll get some of it. In the same way, the two year old gets some idea of what football is like by sitting next to mom and dad as they watch the game so the little one gets, starts to get an idea of what football is, how it's played. In that way, these little ones will get some idea of what God says. But that age, they're actually going to get something more. What they're really getting is a sense of God's heart for them. By being included, they'll realize that God doesn't think that faith is an adult thing. But that he thinks it's for them too they'll get the understanding that they matter to him that he includes them in his plans he doesn't dismiss them doesn't overlook them and very importantly they will start to figure out that life is not all about them (laughs) life is not all about what they want that it revolves instead around him and around what he wants and that those things are important enough that they break into what the little children want interrupt them and call for their attention if you think about that's the same thing that a two-year-old is learning from the community experience of watching football he or she realizes that something is here that is important enough to what to break into the normal rhythm of the day to break into the normal rhythm of the week in to break in and interrupt everything else they learn that it can include them that they can be part of that they learn that this is a good thing because, what, mom and dad love this, and if mom and dad love this, then I want to learn to love this too. That's what should happen when God's people gather as well. That's what should happen as mom and dad and the rest of the community love being with God, love being in his presence, love coming together to hear from him. When that's the case, our little ones will pick that up. And because they're included they'll realize there's something special for them as well that does work however the other way around if gathering together for us is just another duty for us it's just something that we have to do it's not something we enter into joyfully if it's an interruption to what we otherwise would want to do our children will pick that up from us as well and our attitude toward god as we don't really enter into worship will end up canceling out God's good intention for our children. We will disciple our children into hating Sunday morning and into hating worship. So what do you see in Deuteronomy? You see God laying out a trajectory. This is God's expectation for his people as they start their life as the people of God, as the nation of Israel. And as you read the rest of scripture, you realize he doesn't change that expectation. But he does start to grow on that, to build on that, and and to flesh it out a little bit. So if you come to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8, you're going to see a similar assembly. The people have recently been in exile. They've been in Babylon, and they are now separated by hundreds of years from the time when God first gave them his words. And so they're separated culturally— They've been living in a pagan nation. They're separated linguistically, speaking a different language than their ancestors did. So this time, not only do they gather to hear God's word read, but there are additional people there who unpack its meaning so they can understand what this means for them. These are essentially people who are preaching and teaching so that the word of God written once for all now means something to these people hundreds of years later. You see that in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. All the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And then dropping down to verse 7, you learn there that there were others with Ezra. The Levites who helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book from the law of God clearly And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Now you notice again here who's there. Verse 1, all the people. Who is that? Verse 2, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. Now you have to remember here how Scripture works. We talked about this recently, that it's all connected to each other. That the earlier parts lay out their trajectory of what God is doing and the later parts do not replace the earlier parts. They do what? They build on them. So it's not enough, you're learning here, just to bring our little ones to let God's word sort of wash over them. But we also long for them to understand what's going on. Now again, this is not a replacement for what we read in Deuteronomy. This is not like God suddenly realized he made a mistake. This is not God saying, oops, including the little ones who can't march. That was a really bad idea. Service was really noisy today what on earth was I thinking? Let's adjust that to people who are a little older. It's not what God is saying. He's saying that there is an important part of hearing his word. Hearing it read, hearing it preached, that also involves understanding it. So we not only need to expose our little ones to the corporate gathering, to the word of God, we also need to make sure that they can understand what they're hearing. And then just one more passage. Think again here trajectory. Deuteronomy takes place before the exile into Babylon. Nehemiah takes place after they returned. We're going to look at one more passage after Jesus has risen. Book of Colossians is a letter. It's a letter that Paul expected would be read out loud when the people were gathered. In that sense, just like Deuteronomy, just like the law of Moses were to be read out loud. You see that expectation in Colossians chapter 416 that says, when this letter has been read among you, have it also read where? In the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So the expectation is that this letter was read like the other scriptures. Say, okay, it's supposed to be read in the church. Who's supposed to be there listening? If you go to chapter 3, there are several people who are talk to specifically. Chapter 318 speaks directly to wives. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. What does that tell you? It doesn't mean that only husbands were supposed to be there and then go home and say, honey, I've got a word from the Lord for you. It means that wives were supposed to be in the room hearing what God said to them directly, that God includes them as full participants in the community, just like he has from the beginning. Then verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. That's a direct address to husbands with the expectation that they are in the room taking the sin. And Then verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord and you hear it one more time the same expectation that we heard in Deuteronomy the same that we heard in Nehemiah is here too expectation that children are in the room listening they are engaged in hearing from God they have an obligation to understand and to respond then you think you back up a little bit and you think wow they are hearing the whole book of Colossians read They are sitting through the heady theology of colossians chapter one the implications of it in chapter two and they're still engaged chapter three and four as god speaks explicitly about what everyone now needs to do so do they understand everything that they're hearing i think no no more than i understand colossians if you sat down and read the whole thing to me but you realize they're supposed to take something away from it anyway As what? As they take their place among the people of God. That's point two. Real fast, brief survey, some of what the Bible says. Point three, what's this all mean for us? First, the elders at Renewal still see our children joining us every Sunday for praise and confession as vital. Vital to their spiritual health, vital to our spiritual health as a church and at the same time we continue to see the Sunday morning children's ministry as equally vital to our ministry as a church we want to make sure both that our children join the community because that's their right and we also want to make sure that they hear God's word in a way that they can understand so we're going to continue with both with covenant worship and we'll continue to commit our time and resources to children's ministry. Second, however, we realize, come to our attention, that our children have been missing out on an important part of worship because they're not present with us when we receive communion. It's clear that they can't yet discern the body of Christ among us, as 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine 29 tells us that we have to do, and so they should not receive communion themselves but they should see the sacrament. They should be exposed to the sacrament. They should learn about it so that over time, they also then long to participate in it. In the same way that young people would have participated in the Passover celebration, even though they didn't fully understand it. And so this year on Communion Sundays, as you have seen in the email we sent out, as Pastor Dan just talked about, we will not have children's ministry on Communion Sundays. And we're going to do that so that our children and all of their teachers and all of the volunteers can participate so that that's the time when the whole community is gathered together. We'll have to adjust the service somewhat. We will make the messages shorter. We'll come forward to receive communion together as families. We used to come forward uh, pre-pandemic. We used to leave our kids in the seats. We want to start to invite them to come forward. They will not receive the communion elements, only communion members will do that. But they need to understand that their participation is within the covenant community of God. And this is going to help as they then start to ask you questions. What does it mean to eat this meal in God's presence? What does that mean? They're going to learn this is not a social activity. This is not a snack. But that God calls his people to eat and drink him of him in his presence together and our hope in doing this is that our children will see this and then what learn to desire this for themselves that by taking part physically they will anticipate that day when maybe they can take part spiritually we're hoping too that this will signal to them that their true place is among the larger people of God so that when they leave children's ministry in sixth grade, that that transition into the larger community is not going to be as difficult because they'll already have been experiencing some of what that's like roughly 12 times in a given year. That brings us third to the thing that we realize we need to do more of, and that is to help our young people move from children's ministry into the adult service. We keep hearing anecdotes of people outside of our church who get so used to having everything built around them as young people that when they go off to college they have a hard time getting used to church they keep looking for something that is more tailored to them on a sunday morning maybe we can learn something here from our jewish religious friends they have a tradition their preteens take months of study to learn about the faith, about the adult community that they're going to become part of, because that's the goal, that you would join the adult community, that they would take their place in that community once they celebrate their bar mitzvah or their bat mitzvah. And we're thinking, maybe we could do something similar. Maybe we could help our young people understand this is the place. And one of the ways that we think that we would like to try is once a month to have Pastor Nick take our 6th through 8th graders out of the service after the opening part of the liturgy. Teach them a skill that will help them learn then how to learn. How do you learn from Scripture? How do you learn from a sermon? He'll teach that skill, then he'll preach a sermon that will allow them to practice using that skill, and then they'll debrief together what it is that they learned. We're hoping that that, as well as continuing to process the Sunday morning messages together as a youth group, similar to the way that we do in our CGs, we're hoping that that will help them better transition into the larger church. That's the really high level of what we see in Scripture, of how we're trying to be faithful to what God has said with the community that we have. now. Will everyone embrace those changes? Maybe not. Other churches do things differently. We have for years. Some churches have infants in the service every week. Others never do. Some churches have a dedicated youth sermon every week. Others never do. The application of these passages is different. I'm sure that we have a lot to learn here. I'm sure that we're going to need to make some adjustments in the future. But for now, having studied Scripture, having prayed through it, having discussed it a lot with a lot of different people, this is what our leadership thinks is best for our community based on what we see in Scripture, based on who we are as a community. Are there any concerns about what this is going to be like? Absolutely. There are a lot of concerns. For instance, I could imagine someone saying, man, Children are noisy. Teenagers learning new skills. They can be distracting. This is going to impact my worship experience. It's it's, it's just not going to be what it was. That's probably true. Our higher goal, however, is that it would impact God's worship experience. That he would have the people gathered to him that he wants. And that he would bless them, us, in the way that he wants to. So instead of us aiming at a perfect worship experience, maybe we can learn to take our worship to the next level by realizing that just like our children have to learn that worship is not about them, maybe we need to be reminded that worship is not about us. That it really is about God. This God who unbelievably, wants us in his presence with our children. There is another goal, however, and that is that these changes would impact the worship experience of our children and teens, that it would go another step toward communicating God's heart to them and his involvement in their lives as well as his lordship over their lives. So if you're like me and if you're thinking about how this is going to impact you, let me invite you to join me. Join me in praying what? Praying for the first and the second great commandments that we would love God in this experience of his worship, and that we would love especially our children and teens during Sunday morning. And then let me encourage you strongly throughout the liturgy, get involved, sing, sing louder, sing above the distractions, pray louder, confess louder, Let your passion for God come out in such a way that it teaches even the littlest ones who cannot march, that it teaches them what it means to enter into God's presence. Or maybe you have a different concern. Maybe you're a parent and you're thinking, okay, I can see this and I understand why we're making these changes. I don't know how to do this. I don't have the tools to do that. We hear you. And you're not alone you have to figure this out on your own we'll hold seminars on how to help your kids enter into worship children's ministry will make activity sheets available to help starting this week we're going to start sending the liturgy home in advance not home we're going to email the liturgy out in advance please when you get that don't just throw that in the trash look at it open it up maybe you use that for family worship so that your kids Have already worked through the vocabulary words they don't know so that you are not coming to the prayer of confession for the very first time on a sunday morning so that you are ready your children are that much more ready to enter in we'll keep reminding each other as well that our calling as parents to is to what it's to trust the lord to be at work as we follow him as we bring our children to him our calling is not to be successful it is not to produce perfectly well behaved little angels who focus themselves on God. That's not our calling. We can't make that happen. We can't get inside of our children's hearts and do that. What we can do is bring them before Him and help them learn how to focus on Him. Or maybe you're thinking, man, you, you don't know my kids. They're squirming, they, 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 they can't sit still no doubt. So are mine. I remember an awful uh, Sunday mornings when my children were young, picking them up and then walking back and forth in the back of the room. It felt like I walked miles during worship. I see some of you doing that and I think good for you. You're caring for your little ones in great ways. You're taking into account their physical needs, while you're helping them realize, no, there is something still here that's bigger than themselves. If I can say this, there's no, this could sound condescending, there isn't any in my heart. If I could just say it this way, I'm really proud of you for doing that. For not quitting, for not giving up, but for continuing to reach out to your child in a way that meets them. There are also times, however, when we all know it's not enough to walk in the back. (laughs) They're just melting down. And sometimes you just need to take your child outside for a few minutes. Help them sort themselves out. That is part of training them about what it means to be in a larger setting. Sometimes that Sunday you can come back in, and sometimes that's just not going to work that week. And I want to say to you, that's okay too. I was talking to a father of a young child this past week, and I said, you know, I'm no prophet. But I have absolute confidence that when your child is 18... He'll no longer be melting down. Which means what? Somewhere between here and there, you'll see that change. Until then, God calls you what? To simply be faithful to what you know to do. Then lastly, maybe you're someone who thinks, yeah, but people people are looking at me. I feel their eyes on me when my kid starts to act out. That may be true. But have you stopped to think that maybe they're watching with compassion? That's how Jesus looked at the crowds when they were harassed and helpless. He looked at them with compassion. I was on a flight one time. There was a little one close by, not yet a year old. And this little one was not having a good time. And they did not have a good time for a very long time. Yelling, screaming. Parents were doing everything they could, trying to calm him down, trying to care for him. Sometimes he would quiet, and then he would just reinvigorate they didn't lose their patience with him one time throughout several long hours and I wanted somehow just to encourage them I I, I do things like this every now and then I don't know how they're taken we landed and I, I just felt like I needed to say something I said you guys I you did a great job with him I just want to encourage you you're really good parents maybe we could learn to think like that with each other in the room on a Sunday morning that we could just be family together I'm speaking here to me as much as I am to anyone else but maybe we could learn to look at each other when someone's child is melting down and we could smile at them not the condescending will you please take care smile at them in an encouraging kind of way and remind ourselves to be thankful that God has chosen to welcome another image of his into his presence and if, as a parent, you still feel others are looking at you with disapproval, like it's really not with compassion, if you feel like the disciples are staring at you, trying to keep your kids away from God, then remember that their eyes are not most important. God's heart. And remember that God sees you. He sees your heart. He sees your desire with, to honor him with your children. He sees you, and he smiles. Here's a chance to practice letting his smile be worth more to you than anyone else's frown. So let me close here by thinking about what Jesus hungered for as a 12-year-old boy. Thinking here, Luke chapter 2. What did he hunger for? It was to be in God's house, sitting among an older community of God's people, listening to them teach the word of God, asking questions. Jesus wanted more than anything as a young man to be in God's presence and to hear the voice of God. And you think about that. The the apostle John tells us that Jesus is the Word of God made flesh. And when you see the Word of God made flesh, one of the earliest things that you learn about him is that the Word of God could not get enough of the Word of God. As a 12-year-old man entering the adult community of God's people, taking his place among the people, he hungered, after the Word of God. And what did he find there? He told his disciples over and over and over. He found that he came to this earth to pay for all of those who didn't hunger. He came to pay for you when you didn't hunger for the Word of God. He came to pay for our children when you and they hungered for something else. And he came so that after paying for our lack of hunger, he could put his passion inside of us for the Word of God so that we would hunger more than anything else to hear God speak to us. And he also put inside of us the desire that we would follow him in being uncomfortable at times if only someone else might have the chance to hear the Word of God. You can trust Jesus then next couple of months when you're uncomfortable because he made himself more uncomfortable he came to this earth folded himself into a body lived here suffered died made him more made himself more uncomfortable for your sake and the sake of our children than any of us will ever be on a Sunday morning and in that process he learned firsthand he knows exactly what our children need in order to have his same hunger from God, for God. And he knows exactly what their parents and the rest of us as a community need to foster that hunger. That means we can confess our sins to him of not hungering, and confess our sins of wanting comfort. We can trust him. We can rely on him as we listen to him. Lord Jesus, Thank you that you don't simply tell us what to do. You give us the resources that we need in order to do that. Thank you that we have your word, that your word does change us and does transform us. Thank you, Lord, that you've placed your spirit inside of us so that we do respond to your word. We long, Lord, to be in your presence. We long to hear your word. We long for everyone else, children included, to have that experience as well. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us faith, to believe that what you call us to do, you will bless. Lord, teach us to look for the blessings you give rather than the blessings we want. And we pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.